Back up, please. Hello and welcome to Busy Nation Dhando Takko Rokro. This is Ritika with my friend Abhishek. Hello everyone. And if you guys were there with us about two seconds before the recording button was pressed, then I don't think either of us were as excited about this because it's one o'clock in the morning in India and about six o'clock in Australia. Yes. So let's just get down to business. <laughs> yes. Well, it seems cruel to talk about the economic impact of a crisis like the Japan earthquake, the tsunami that followed, and the nuclear disaster that's still going on. Uh, but it's true that any such crisis today not only has an impact of the economy of that region, but also the entire world. And the amazing part is that more often than not, disasters like these—it seems—I mean, it's—it's it, the statistics that say that they act as an economic stimulus because there is so much money that goes in rebuilding uh, and hence the creation of jobs and even like the USA had one of its best growth rates you know during the world war right and and just to give you a background of how big the crisis is what happened on on march 11 was a magnitude 9 earthquake which by the way is equivalent to 30000 hiroshimas that was as powerful as that so it shifted the earth on its axis it made it spin a little faster it shortened the day by 1.8 millionth of a second so it was that big about 14000 people have been reported dead half a million are in emergency shelters in japan and uh, from the economic perspective all of this has caused a lot of problems for the citizens of japan where the average age is a little high i think after germany japan is the fastest you brought about the effect on the economy what i read was that 4% of the gdp is what japan will be set back by and they'll be back to normal in a couple of quarters just about 15 minutes ago i recorded a podcast with uh, the japan correspondent of the economist he 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 was there when the ground shook and he took us through what it was when he was there and he said that if you put the nuclear radiation problem behind or if you put that the nuclear bit that is happening that then it could take about two quarters for the economy to come back into operation it has a wide impact on economy especially the the bit with the nuclear plant because the nuclear plant has also caused shortage of electrical supply which uh, impacts all the industry and japan is a very heavily industrialized company it's also one of the major manufacturers of the world and especially of the electrical or auto components and hence it plays a very important role in the entire supply chain of a car or any such uh, electrical product so there are companies like toyota sony nissan which are based out of japan and they have been impacted even though they have factories world over but still there is some of the other component that comes from japan and to just give a small sample of numbers uh, sony still has six factories closed and it has had to slash its outputs and nissan makes about 22% of its vehicles in Japan and it's losing about 24 or 25 million dollars a day so so this may result in a short term supply deficit for these companies and hence resulting in a notional loss in terms of lost sales yeah and in fact what worries me is that imagine this now many companies which source their products from Japan will now move to places yes. like South Korea and yes. Taiwan and China 
Yeah, that's right. It's already losing business, in, especially in food exports, because of the radiation fear. And there are curves on the import, in the food imports from Japan because of the radiation fear. So it is losing money there, even though it's too early to say exactly what is the impact and how far the radiations have reached and how worse it is. But still, you know, people get scared. Even though Japan is not such a big exporter of food, but still it does export seafood, vegetables, etc. So, and one of its biggest market is Hong Kong. And there's also China and United States. And the major uh, trading partner of Japan is China. And it, it accounts for 20% of its revenues. So it will adversely impact yes. that trade. Yep. And also India is involved in a big way. And so what does it mean to India is what many people want to know. And although Japan doesn't have a great deal of foreign trade mm-hmm. investment in India, it's only $2.6 billion. But, you know, it's incidentally the third largest source of FDI. Which only goes to show how yes. little FDI India has overall. There are companies like Sony, Toyota, Honda, they've got manufacturing facilities in India. There is Suzuki, which is the largest car manufacturer in India. It's got tire uh, with Maruti. So then, if something goes wrong in Japan, it indirectly will affect in India. Also, given the fact that Indian IT companies like Wipro, TCS, Infosys, they've got a total of close to 1,000 employees there. So there were, there were news about trying to evacuate them over the past two weeks back to India. And uh, thankfully, none of them have closed down their offices there. So there is some amount of operation that is still kept out there. But employees have been given an option of coming back and working from home or working offshore. And w- one of the other biggest impacts that it will have on India is on the Indian nuclear power industry, you know, where we just signed a deal or the Manmohan Singh government just signed a deal. And the countries who have already implemented like uh, nuclear power, like Germany, are now going back to their drawing boards. So even though it's too early for the assessment, but looking at Germany, who, you know, it decided to shut down all seven of its nuclear plants, which were... Uh, pre-1980. It has shut it down till June and it's it's taking a look back on that. So it looks like all the hard work that Manmohan Singh did and one of the, you know, few subjects on which he actually took a stand, which he, which is very rare, is, is all set to fail probably. Now people, I mean, there were so many uh, sections of the society which were against it and now they will be against it even more. And because India already has a power crisis, so if we are not going for nuclear power, then it's going to be interesting as to what happens there. Completely. In fact, a few months back, Merkel, the, the Chancellor of Germany, she had started, she had commissioned a couple of more plants mm. to start the nuclear production for electricity generation in Germany because 17 plants there, they provide up to 25% of the electricity generation in Germany. But what happened now has caused countries like Germany, even France, uh, 75% of electricity in France is produced by nuclear energy. So people have become, at least these countries have become skeptical, especially the ones which have reactors on the coastal line uh, with the tsunami that just hit 
Japan. In fact, most of these nuclear parks, they are situated along the coast because I think they are water guzzlers, so they need a lot of water for their cooling process, and that's why they are mostly along the coast. And I was reading this in you know in 2004 when the Indian Ocean was hit by tsunami, and even the Indian coast were badly hit. The Madras Atomic Power Station was also shut down because of that. So. Seaside reactors are really very vulnerable to natural disasters. When was that? Was December 2004, yes. right? The big yes, tsunami. Yes. That didn't have enough impact on the GDP of any of the economies there because it took place in an area where lots of poor people inhabited. Exactly. So their contribution yes. to the GDP wasn't that huge. Yes. But this, it's not exactly the case this time because, like you said, you took a few name of few companies before. Uh, they are all clustered in the area where this happened. So let's say a semiconductor industry, the entire industry suddenly has taken a big hit. There are companies which have stopped their production lines. So this time around, it looks slightly different. But having said that, the way Japanese relish the kind of challenges that they have after Hiroshima or after the mm. earthquake that took place in 1995, mm. when they got their uh, economy back to 98% of the capacity in, in in 15 months. So I don't know how they do it, what is it that runs through their DNA, but uh, Japan has bounced back sooner than most people would, would imagine. Yeah, and I'm sure you must have read the few articles that have been going around lately about, you know, how there are no loot in Japan even after such a big disaster. So there is no robbery going on and people are not, you know, fighting with each other or fighting for food and how they all queue up properly in a line and wait for the food to be, you know, given to them. And People actually stood in queue to get their tax returns filed during a time like this. There are hardly any families where not at least one person is either dead or missing in certain areas in Japan. So if anyone's listening out there from Japan, heart and everything goes out to you guys for surviving surviving this. True, you know, how much ever we talk about economic impact, the long-term, short-term impact, but there is only one long-term impact of such a crisis and that is a tremendous human loss and those images which will never yeah. you know get out of our head so you know it is also said that earthquake is the worst possible natural calamity that can hit man because there was a study done by world bank back in 2009 it said that if there is a flood in a particular region then at least it increases the soil fertility in the coming years. In that particular year, the output will fall drastically. But because the agricultural production increases in the next year, it spills over to other sectors. It helps developing the allied sectors. So the manufacturing grows, the services grow, so everything has a good cascading effect. But in case of earthquakes, buildings fall off, productions are down, there are blackouts, there is your cell phone networks don't work. Everything bad that can happen does happen with earthquake and if it is followed by a tsunami then it is, uh, is more unfortunate. That's true and also because of the nuclear crisis there and the current crisis going on in Middle East, oil has now become dearer because of that So and the gas has become dearer because of that. It seems that debt is almost 200% of the GDP. So at times like this and I don't know is it because Earthquake are supposed to have a positive impact on the industrial growth, like the infrastructure, the buildings, the factories, which will be again rebuilt. 
and of course there are some people who are always looking for a silver lining and one of them is Warren Buffett who has come out and said that he thinks of this as an a uh, great opportunity to invest in Japan because he obviously believes that it's going to come back and because the stocks have fallen and it it's a good time to go there and invest real estate because <laughs> yeah but in a way it is yeah you're right about your introduction sometimes it is it is very cruel to talk about this in, in that particular manner right when you want to profit yes. from from something that is currently in the rubbles completely and the uh, the person who with whom I had a podcast with he was from Japan and he's clipped many pictures which are there on the economist and if you go to see there is a picture of a woman trying to uh, she's using a stick and she's trying to prod through the debris to find if his if her aunt is lying somewhere there and she is hopeful that there is at least one of the family members somewhere and she's doing it in such a matter of fact way that uh, that's that's just the truth that that's the kind of situation out there in japan it's sad if you see japan and then you see the entire middle east which is going through the crisis it seems as if half the world is in crisis because every day when you get up and you watch news the first news is about japan and the second one is about middle east and they are both very disturbing yes you bet and it doesn't help when our prime minister is also involved or at least uh, allegedly involved in certain <laughs> that's, yeah, so that's also like Uh, fun now, you know. I think people would probably start betting on that. That you know, which scam is going to come out next? Yeah, it's not even amusing any longer. It's just like, oh, one more. Sad, but yeah, true. And talking about scam and you know the and powerful governments, our neighbor Bangladesh is also facing one such problem. Uh, we have talked about microfinance in our earlier podcast, and the man who pioneered this institution in Bangladesh, he and his institution also won a Nobel Peace Prize for the same. Uh, it's Mohammad Yunus from Grameen Microfinance Bank that we are talking about. Mm-hmm. To just give a recap, in 1999 he was appointed as the managing director of the Grameen Bank, and now because it seems because of his not so good relationship with the current prime minister Sheikh Hasina. and the bangladesh government he has been removed from that position and the reason which they have given is that you know because he is 70 and the retirement laws in bangladesh say that you cannot work more than the age of 60 so he has to retire but it seems a bigger reason is that conflict between the government and between him because in 2007 he floated a party to fight the elections and so because he is getting into politics Grameen Bank has also been brought into politics. I haven't seen any microfinance company in the news for the right reasons. SKS Microfinance, led by Vikram Akula, which is India's only microfinance with an IPO, it's running into a lot of trouble in Hyderabad, where it has got its uh, headquarters. Unlike in Bangladesh, where I think you said the reasons are more political, here in India the reasons seem to be that uh, exorbitant interest rates are causing farmers to commit suicides because they aren't able to. We pay in installments in time, and that it is alleged that certain microfinance companies are sending in gundas or you know forcibly trying to extract that amount. That amount. So microfinance not doing too well. And this is this is very surprising. Two years ago, it was considered to be a kick-ass model for profiting from the poor, where both poor as well as the capitalism work in tandem. You know, because if you and ten other women, let's say, are starting a small business by getting a cow and trying to sell milk from that cow and you have to repay installments every week and the reason there is that 
the burden doesn't come on you at the end of the month. Everything was in the right place, at least the principally it, it sounded right, but I'm not passing a judgment here, but that is what seems to be the case. Yes, interestingly, a few days back, Yunus pointed out that he, he in fact criticized India's uh, microfinance uh, companies and said that they are turning the sector into a money-spinning opportunity. And, and that's somewhere right, because they did not really follow uh, the backbone of uh, such kind of institutions. And that involves that social circle that you were talking about. So you lend only to 10 people. And then, like Raman Bank, it lends only to women. And it only lends to, you know, uh, people who come in a group of five or six or so on. So when these uh, institutions started lending in India, they I think they did not follow that. And it just went into just, uh, you know, giving money at higher rates to poor people. I think one of the reasons why they loan to a group because the rest of the team would ensure that each one of them repays. Because if you don't repay with your loan, you won't get the next capital. Yes. So it was all nicely choreographed uh, to help both sides. But uh, at least uh, something has gone wrong. We'll, we'll probably have to dig a little bit more and perhaps talk to a couple of microfinance institutions before we can pass some judgment. But... That is what the papers are saying. That. Yes, that's true. And moving on, Rajat Gupta, the Indian-American, uh, he was the former chief of McKinsey and Company. And we are often, I think in some of our podcasts, we have praised him and he was a man whom we all you yes. know, admired. But he has now offered to resign for, as a chairman of the Indian School of Business because he has allegations against him of insider trading by the uh, U.S. market regulator, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So he has offered to resign because of those charges. He has been charged in the same case as uh, Raja Ratnam from Galleon, and he has been charged of passing some insider information to him. So I mean, what, what would motivate these people? He's got a, <laughs> uh, Gupta has got a degree from IIT. Harvard yes. Business School, MIT alumnus, worked with McKinsey, is mm. the founding director of or, or uh, holds a high position in, in Indian School of Business, one of the premier B schools in the country, was the ex-director of, uh, of I, was it Goldman Sachs? No, I don't know. But he, he's worked with certain big Fortune 500 companies and then maybe he said, you know what, this is uh, boring. Let me do something. <laughs> that, let that me, let me just get into papers and let me just get into headlines. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems that ISB is going through, you know, one designation after another. Just before him, uh, Anil Kumar, who was um, also on its board, he had to resign from ISB because he was um, also accused in an insider trading scandal and he has pleaded guilty. And then before that, the dean of ISB, there was uh, Mr. Ram Mohan Roy, who was an independent director of Satyam Computers. Even he had to re- resign because it was alleged that he was somewhere involved in that fraud. ISB should have a lecture on how not to get caught. It's not funny when you have three top guys having to quit of the school or whatever, a company, an organization for these schools. You know, some days back there was this debate that I read on and it was really amongst the students of a business school and it was whether, you know, we should, the business school should have a subject like ethics or not and how should it be taught. So there were many who were against ethics being taught in school because it seemed it was a personal choice and because everyone's moral code is different. 
But if there are such crises and scams going around the world, especially in the corporate world, then it really, you know, makes us think that really, the you know, all these grads coming out of business school, do they need to really learn ethics or not? On the job training. <laughs> That's what it should be. Get your hands dirty, but if you get caught, then you will be maligned in the newspapers. If you are big enough, obviously. Well, I guess... Uh, that's about it from this episode. The time to wrap up. Uh, all you guys, you can log on to theindicast.com and leave your comments there. Would uh, love to know if uh, anyone out there is listening to us from Japan by any chance. And if you think you can help us with some information or tell us what we can do in, a, in any small way to help through the internet. And if you are an Indicast listener, please let us know. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook on Indicast Podcast Network. Please comment. That's about it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.